Well, we are going to jump into our passage this morning. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. And uh, we are, as you know, in this series on wisdom literature. And uh, it has been kind of my hope and prayer uh, in the midst of this series that we would be a people that glean as much wisdom as we can from this summer uh, looking at the wisdom literature. Uh, the, the scriptures, as you know, is filled with wisdom, uh, not just in the more poetic books, but all obviously throughout the text. Uh, but it is in these unique books that uh, cause us to look a little bit differently at the world uh, that I think we are inspired to be people of hope. And so um, my prayer has been and will continue to be through the rest of this series that we glean as much as we can from it. Uh, last week, as you know, we had a uh, guest speaker, uh, Kevin Johnson from Communitas International was here and encouraged us with the idea of living into Zoe life, like a fullness of life, a life that uh, impacts not just the future and the eternal life that we'll have, but that eternal life coming to bear presently on earth in a way that uh, the people we interact with the lives we touch, uh, the people we engage with at work, all of them would recognize that we have something different about us because we are living into this fullness of life. And um, one of the things that encouraged me probably the most was not only uh, did he speak very highly of his time here and was uh, super encouraged uh, by being here and being present with all of us and having a chance to, to share but I think the thing that resonated the most with me was that over the course of uh, the, the weekend that he was here, we got to spend a little bit of time together. Um, we got to spend time with Jeff and Christy over in Coeur d'Alene, uh, and then with Kevin. And over and over he echoed how much uh, this weekend was really meaningful to him. Uh, not just from the sense of like receiving support and encouragement, but um, because he would describe New Community as kind of like one of the flagship kind of churches or ministries under the umbrella of Communitas International. It has been around for 50 years. It'll celebrate 50 years this next summer. And uh, just the way he spoke of this community, I'll, I'll be honest, there are a lot of times where I just kind of put my head down and I'm imagining what's next and how do we do or accomplish the next thing or what is it that we're dreaming about and praying about that I sometimes fail to look back behind and notice all that God has been doing. And so it was really encouraging for me to sit with him and him share that of all of the churches around the world, our church is the one that has by far produced more churches. And out of all of their churches or nonprofits that have started, that we've gone on to start more nonprofits. And that, for many organizations, is unheard of. And so it's just like a testament to what God has been doing in our midst. And I want to encourage you with that because sometimes I fail to recognize where he's moving and how he's been moving. And uh, so for us to just acknowledge that was really, really cool. And, and the time with him here uh, was really special in that way. So be encouraged. God is continuing to move in us, and uh, there's much that I believe he is wanting to do for us and with us in the future. Uh, I want us to start our time this morning by uh, doing a little exercise. If you would, take your bulletin or a sheet of paper uh, that you have with you, and just, if you would, flip it over 
pull out a pen, and uh, I want you to record a few things on your sheet of paper. And here's what I want you to record. I want you to list, it doesn't matter how many, five, ten, whatever amount comes to your mind in the next minute or two. I want you to list moments that you can look back on, experiences that you can look back on that have been the most formative, that have produced the greatest amount of growth in your life, have brought about the most uh, acquisition of wisdom, uh, maybe where you learned more at that moment than any other time, uh, some point where you could kind of like look back and say, this was a moment my spiritual maturity really moved forward. I'll give you an example before you write down. Uh, years ago, I mentioned this, but uh, in the first year of our marriage, Shannon had some heart problems at the one-year anniversary or a few days after the one-year anniversary. Uh, she had open-heart surgery. That was a, a very formative time for me. Uh, it was a time where I look back and say it was a moment of growth learning, I acquired wisdom, there was probably more spiritual maturity took place in me in that moment uh, than many others that I can look to, right? So that's the goal. Write down as many as you can think of in the next minute, moments in which you have the most growth, most change, most learning, most wisdom, you get the idea, all right? I'll give you about a minute to do it. Go. Okay. Now, I want you to do another little thing with your list. I want you to put a check mark, a star, whatever way of uh, signifying you want. Um, the moments that you described, which of those moments were born out of adversity, tension, difficulty, challenge, a hard time, okay? You get the idea? So if you had five or seven there, which are the ones that were born, put a little check mark next to the ones born out of adversity or challenge, difficulty, tension of some sort? And I want you to just mentally score your list. So if you had seven things down, were five of them born out of uh, tension and difficulty? Uh, were half of them born out of adversity? Was it more than half? Um, I want you just to kind of mentally score your list. And, and I'm going to tell you that I'm working off a little premise here, and I could be wrong. Somebody could have written down ten things, and of all ten, nine of them were just born out of straight ease, born out of a midst of comfort, born out of, like, just being in a place where things were amazing. But I'm going to suggest that uh, most of us probably have a list that's tilted a little bit more toward the idea that we learn the most, we grow the most in adversity rather than prosperity. That we actually have more growth in the midst of difficulty than we do in the midst of ease. That we acquire more wisdom in the midst of challenge than we do in the midst of comfort. Okay? Now, I could be wrong, but that's the premise I'm working off this morning is that most of us, if we look back on those moments of radical change in our life, spiritual formation taking place, a chance where we've acquired wisdom of some sort, that it probably was born out of difficulty or pain in some particular way. And I think that one of the challenges we have with this, uh, I'll give you two. One particular problem we have with acquiring wisdom that way is uh, that all of us are naturally inclined to the idea that uh, comfort is well more, way more enjoyed than 
discomfort, right? That we want ease rather than tension. So I would argue that part of why we may not be acquiring wisdom, may not be growing at the rates in which we, is because we shy away from, avoid, seek to do whatever kind of maneuvering we can to get out of tension and rather stay in comfort. That's one challenge we have. We'll probably, we're not going to talk about that more this morning, but that's something we can return to at a later time. The other challenge I think that we have when it comes to this idea of uh, knowing where we're growing, knowing where God is at move in our life, seeing wisdom acquired, is that we have a problem or a difficulty with assigning to moments in life what category they should come in. So we'd like to do that mentally. We like to go, this was a good moment. This was a bad moment. This is something I want more of. This is something I want to avoid. And so we probably have some bit of difficulty in the way we assign categories to our life experiences. I'll give you a little fable to help you understand what I mean. Uh, There's a story told of an old wise man that lived in a mountain village. This man um, was kind of like, he was a woodcutter, also had a farm, and uh, he lived on this farm with his family, which consisted of his wife and his one son. And uh, throughout kind of their experience, they loved the mountain village, but on one particular night, a storm came in and knocked some of their fencing over, and in the morning, he woke up, he was kind of looking out uh, the window and noticed that the one horse they had that helped them with uh, everything on the farm uh, took off, jumped over the broken part of the fence, and ran off kind of out into the wild. And uh, his neighbors and his friends came over, and they said to him, man, we are so sorry. That's just a horrible event. We apologize. We wish something was different. Uh, that's, That's just really bad news. And he looked at him, and he said, is it bad news? It could be good news. I don't know. It's maybe too early to tell. And a few days went by, and his horse came running back. He was looking out. It was near dusk, and his horse came running back, and his horse was running with another horse. And both horses came to the edge, jumped back in the enclosure. He ran out, fixed the fence, put it back up to keep him inside, and now he had two horses. And all of his neighbors came to celebrate. They're like, man, this wild stallion that came looks amazing it's healthy what a gift what a blessing Uh, this is such good news and he looked at him and he said well it might be good news but it might be bad news we don't know yet story goes that uh, the next morning his son goes out to help tame the new uh, wild horse and is riding or trying to ride the wild horse gets bucked off falls breaks his leg His neighbors again come and say, you guys are on a bad string of luck. This is horrible. He's the one that helps you on the farm. This is is sad, sad news. And again, the wise farmer said, well, I don't know that it's sad news yet. It could be good news. Story goes that just a few days later, war broke out in the nation, and the government sent officials to every small village and chose every young male to go to war. And every young male in that particular village died except for his son simply because his son couldn't go to war. And the moral of the story as told by the old wise man is that you see there are some things that are actually considered bad that may in fact be good. 
and some things that you consider good that may in fact be bad, and the wisdom is in knowing the difference. The wisdom is in giving it time to figure out what is truly good and what is truly bad. And the reason I share that story with you is that uh, in our passage in Ecclesiastes today, that's kind of the point. The author is basically saying, some of you consider this to be a really, really good thing, and I'm going to suggest that maybe the opposite is better. And he's trying to reframe our thinking in particular ways. So if you, again, have your Bible and you haven't yet turned to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, please do so. We're going to read through the first 14 verses. Ecclesiastes 7, 1 through 14. And it says this, A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of myrrh. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of a wise man to hear, than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Ecclesiastes 7, 1 through 14. Now, there is a lot for us to unpack here in these verses, so much so that we're actually going to take two weeks to do it. Uh, So this will be just the first six verses today, and then uh, in a couple weeks I'm going to unpack the second half of these set of verses, because I just think there's a lot for us to dig into. And the first uh, suggested idea comes from the first part of verse 1, and it says this, a good name is better than precious ointment. The, the reality is what the author is getting us to consider, or in this case the preacher as they call him, is that uh, your reputation matters. Right? He, he starts off with a real simple idea one that we would probably all acknowledge, one that we've probably heard hundreds of times over, and it's the idea that your reputation, what people think of you, matters. It's significant. In fact, he says it's of great worth. Proverbs 22.1 also reiterates the same idea. It says a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. Uh, that reputations are those things that you forge over the course of a lifetime, and that every single action you take builds on that reputation, and it only takes a moment to reverse all of it. 
One moment, one decision, one piece of time, one action reverses all of it. Socrates makes this statement about reputation. He says, the greatest way to live with honor in this world is to be what we pretend to be. The idea is to be so genuine with who you are, to be so honest with the way in which you live, that your reputation simply follows the very life you're leading. You don't have to go around pretending. You don't have to act a certain way. You just live out of who it is that God is transforming you into being, and in the midst of that, reputation is formed. And so the big idea at the beginning is that our reputation matters. But the truth is, this little section is really intended to lead us to the second part of the first verse. So what he's doing as the author is he's just trying to kind of whet your appetite and get all of you to go, yeah, totally, I'm with you. Reputation matters Absolutely. Everybody knows that. And then he kind of moves into this second idea, which is his bigger idea, and that is that death gives life or gives meaning to life. Because he says, and the day of death essentially is better than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. He's building on that previous idea, and he's now trying to reverse your thinking. And he says, I know all of you are in agreement with me that reputation matters, but now are you in agreement with me that death is actually better than life? Are you in agreement with me to move into a place of mourning is actually better than a place of joy or of laughter? And he's trying to force us to rethink and not just kind of agree with him along the way. Now, there's a couple ways that you can understand what he's communicating here. The first one I would suggest is that uh, reputation is finalized at the end. What, what we mean by that, or what he might be suggesting, is that it's better to have lived a really good life and have died than it is to be just starting birth right now with all of your reputation still to be written. Now, obviously, if you haven't lived the best of lives and your reputation is in tatters when you pass, that would be what he would consider foolish. What he's suggesting is that you have this opportunity, all of us do, in front of us, to live in a way that builds the reputation. But once death comes, the script is written, you've acted out all of the parts of your play up to that point, and the final verdict or the final reputation is given. And so he's suggesting that if you've lived a good life, if you've walked in the ways of wisdom, then the day of death is a better day than the day of birth. That's one suggested idea. The second suggested idea would be this, that we're to live with the end in mind. That what he is proposing is uh, that there's something that death gives that life in itself cannot. It, it gives us a meaning, a purpose, a significance. So I want you just to imagine for a moment that, uh, that I was going to come up to you and I was going to gift you $26,000. Here's $26,000. You could do whatever you want with it. No strings attached. Your money. Go for it. I would imagine that you, some of you might already be starting to spend it. You might be thinking about how you would utilize the $26,000 no strings attached. Now, some of you might say, 
man, our car broke down, we could use another. Some of you might say, oh, this would be a chance. I wanted to go on for further schooling. This would pay for uh, my schooling. Or some of you would say, oh, man, I so badly want to get out of the apartment we're in, and it would be nice to have a down payment for the house. The list could go on. Maybe you have a dream vacation that you've always wanted to go on, and hey, no strings are attached. Let's use it for that. Again, whatever it is you're imagining, imagine for a moment that you had the money. Now, let me change the scenario just a little bit. And let me suggest that you have $26,000 and I give it to you and I say, it's yours to do whatever you want with, but that's all that I'm giving you for this entire year. And that's all you have to spend for the whole year. Others of you would go, oh, wow, okay, that changes things. I only have $26,000 to spend for the year. I need to kind of scale back some of my expectations with the money scale back or be really thoughtful about the way that I would use it. Now let's imagine one more, which is this, that I give you $26,000 and then I say to you, this is all you have for your entire lifetime to use. Not a, not a dollar more. $26,000 spend wisely. Use it however you'd like. Again, some of you are going, well, that's not enough. I would like a little bit more. Is, is there some other way around this? But let's suppose we just change the conditions one more time, and what I offered you wasn't $26,000, but what I offered you was 26,000 days. Because the average lifespan in Western civilization would be about 26,000 days, and you get to spend them however it is you like. Some of us may be healthy and get 27,000 days. If you live to 100, if my math is right, that's uh, I think like 36,500 days if, if you live to a century. If you live to less than a century, and some of you, obviously, you're already using a significant amount of those days. It changes the way in which we look at the number because we recognize there's like a gravity to the number. It's one thing if the number was $26,000 I could just throw away. It's another if those 26,000 days are all that I have to write in. It's the only part of the script that I get to dictate. And then I have a part in it, and God has a part in it, but I have to wonder how is it that I'm using my particular days. That's why in uh, Psalm 90, Moses says this. He says, you should number your days. It says, for all our days pass away under your wrath, we bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. What this text is saying is that death will come to everyone and it is the wise who take it to heart. It is those who kind of live with the end in mind, who really consider what it might be like to be at your funeral and to ask, how is it that I want to be remembered? What are the ways in which I want to have impacted the world in some significant way? What, what would it look like for me to be faithful with what I've been entrusted to? What would I want someone to say of me if we were sitting in a service together and I got to watch? 
really, he's asking us, what do you want to do with your days? And will you live them with wisdom? The third idea that he presents in the next couple of verses is the idea to lament well. He says this, sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of faith, face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of myrrh. Now, I think most of us, it wouldn't take much of a stretch of imagination to recognize that in Western culture, in our, in our context, that what we try to do is to avoid lamenting. We don't want sorrow. We try to uh, erase it quickly. We try to move beyond it. And uh, most of you also recognize that the kind of ancient Near Eastern way of understanding sorrow or the ways in which the scriptures speak to the idea of sorrow is to embrace it, to welcome it, to actually deal with it, to sit with it, which is why they would sit in sackcloth and ashes, to walk around and mourn, to make it visibly evident that you're in the midst of something. They even created spaces of time where they would say for the the following week you're just to mourn. That's that's your only responsibility is to weep for your loss. To recognize it. To go through it. And the Bible obviously offers a lot of support. If you look even to the fact that we have a whole book called Lamentations. Or that if you go to the Psalms, that a majority of all of the Psalms are Psalms of lament, sorrow, weeping, struggle, frustration, right? The Scriptures are telling us to lament well, to embrace it, to not be afraid of it, to to allow it to actually touch us. And that wisdom is when we embrace that pain, that suffering, that lament, and go through it. That's where wisdom comes. Not in the avoidance of it, not in pretending it doesn't exist, but actually going through it. Because it's that sorrow that lets you deal with the grief or the loss. And what we tend to do is we tend to pretend or to mask it. And this scripture is saying it is with sadness of face that the heart is made glad. We promote the opposite. We promote put on a happy face. Regardless of what's going on, just somehow mask it, act like it doesn't matter. And wisdom doesn't come by masking the emotion, but rather with sorrow, expressing it and allowing grief to be felt. The second way I think that we often avoid it or deal with it is that we avoid it. So we somehow seek to create this, uh, uh, like, way in which we're skirting around or not dealing with the emotion that's present. And there's several ways we do it. And uh, one of, I think, maybe the more profound ways that we try to do it is we try to amuse ourselves. Um, So if you take the word amuse for a moment, we would recognize that the A there is the negative or it's negating the word at Uh, And then the center word is muse or think, right? So the big idea of amuse is to stop thinking. And this is what we're trying to do by not dealing with what we need to lament over and we try to amuse ourselves. What we're simply doing 
is trying to stop thinking about what the pain or the issue is. And we do this in numerous ways, right? Uh, we would recognize that we do that through alcohol, through drugs, through entertainment, through pornography. And all of those things, scientists will tell you, aren't so much, you're not doing them just because you really like the pornography. You're doing it because what it does to your brain, which is it releases dopamine, which gets you to get into a heightened, like heightened state of consciousness and to kind of begin to avoid what it is you really need to truly deal with, right? So there's all these ways that we try to mask or to avoid. And one of them, and this I don't want to be stepping on anyone's toes, but one of them that actually brings about a dopamine hit is social media. And I know some of you are like, no, you can't. I don't do social media to be amused or to ignore anything in my life. I just do it because it's a great way of connecting with people. True. But social media also has what's considered by some people as the magic of maybe. How many of you have heard this term, the magic of maybe? A couple of you? Great. So the idea behind the magic of maybe is this, that if you have a phone and you uh, somehow are interacting with the world through things like Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, et cetera, et cetera, I mean, there's a new one every week, and you're interacting with the world through those things, what you do is you post something, release something, send something off into the world, and then you kind of set your phone down, okay? And then here's what happens. You come back to your phone, and that's when the magic of maybe happens because it's maybe somebody's responded. Maybe I've gotten feedback. Maybe someone has liked what I said, agreed with what I said, super excited that I posted the picture, whatever it is, it's the magic of maybe. Now, if you show up to your phone and nothing happens, nobody responded with a thumbs up, a like, whatever, you kind of just continue on your day, no big deal, and maybe you repost. But if for some chance somebody responded and you got the like, you got the reply, you got the wow, that looks amazing. You got whatever it is that you put it out into the world to receive. If you get that, scientists will tell you that what you also get is a dopamine hit of 400% the normal dopamine that you currently have. It's a spike. And that spike is just about equivalent to a hit of cocaine, right? For your brain, not for the rest of your body, but just your brain. So your brain is going, oh my goodness, I'm blitzed right now, right? Oh my goodness, this is amazing, this is incredible, I got what I was looking for, I fee I'm feeding myself. And really, what it is, part of it is just a pretending where I can avoid something else that maybe I don't necessarily want to deal with. Uh, the... I told you recently I went on vacation. There was one particular day we went to this water park. And, uh, I mean, it was beautiful outside. Everything was the way that you would imagine it would be on a day where you take your family to the water park. Incredible. And uh, I'm sitting at this moment. I had just gotten done playing basketball against my boys, and they were just, like, beating me up in the pool. And uh, I went and I sat down um, just on a chair a few rows back from the wave pool. And uh, there happened to be this lady that walked in, and uh, she walked right past me, so I noticed her, and then she sat down maybe five, ten chairs away from me, no one between us and this lady. And um, 
this lady, very nice looking woman sitting there, pulls out her phone and decides for the next five, seven minutes to take about 100 selfies, right? And they were like, not just like, hey, look at me at the water park, but they were like, you know, kissy face, turn. Like any, any imagined position and posture uh, that you could think of, she did while like snapping pics, okay? So she then um, pauses for a moment, I think probably uploading one or deciding of the hundred, is there one that actually is the one that I would like to post? But then she gets up. She makes her way over to the wave pool and stands in front of the wave pool and takes some pictures. Then she walks over to the waterfall and starts taking pictures at the waterfall. Then she walks over to the slide and does pictures at the slide. Then she walks over and she went from like one section to the next section to the next section to the next section, came back and sat back down. Mind you, never participated in any one of those sections, right? Just simply was there, got the shot, and moved on. And then now she sat down, and all she was doing for the next few moments before I was like, okay, I'm done, I'm leaving, was she curated the experience online for the world to see her wonderful day at the water park that consisted of no water, no park, just camera, right? And I share that because it's a little bit like extreme. It's a little bit like, oh, my word. But at the same time, the the same motivating factors are the ones that cause me to figure out how do I disengage? How do I check out of what it is that I should be engaged in? Am I lamenting well? Am I experiencing life to its fullness, both positive and negative? Am I taking it in? and learning from it, because that is part of the heart of wisdom. Let me leave you with one final idea. He says this, listen to some and ignore others. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of a wise man than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Big idea is this, both the wise and the fool will share their wisdom. Everyone will share their wisdom. The question is, are you wise enough to discern that which is coming from the fool and that which is coming from the wise? Because true wisdom is to receive the correct instruction, the correct wisdom, and to kind of close your ear to the wisdom one shouldn't hear. I'll leave you with this final story to kind of make that concept sink in. A story is told of a... um, old man, a young man, and a donkey who were on their way from one village to the other. And this uh, old man is walking alongside with the young boy alongside of a donkey, and as they're walking, a group of people kind of passed them and began to talk, and they threw advice their direction without really talking to them. They just simply said, oh, what a shame. You have an old man and a young boy walking, and you have this donkey that is a beast of burden, but they have nothing on it, and it's not helping them at all. It's kind of foolish of these people. And they walk past, and the young boy and the old man look at each other, and they're like, oh, man, that is kind of useless. So they get the old man up on the donkey, and they're riding a little bit further. And they, uh, this man walks past them, and as he walks past, he's like, what a shame. This is ridiculous. 
There's a man who's fully capable of walking that's allowing a little young boy to be walking alongside of the donkey. And instead, he's getting the free pass. He's getting to ride. What a, that's horrible. And this man was like criticizing them for the action. And so the young, they pass and the young boy looks at the old man and goes, oh man, we should do something. And so the old man jumps down. And they put the young boy on top and they walk further. And then along comes, you get the idea, another person. And that person goes, how could this young boy let an old elderly man walk alongside of the donkey. This is ridiculous. They should not do that. And so that person passes, and they decide, yeah, that is probably better. And so they both get on top of the donkey, and they're just kind of like just mosey on down the, the village trail until they're met with another group of people. And that group of people goes, I cannot believe that they are treating this animal so inhumanely that they would both put their weight and their burden on this animal and instead, like, would, they don't even care about this animal. And so both the man and the little boy get off the donkey and pick up the donkey and start carrying the donkey because that has to be the right decision. And they're carrying the donkey and they get to this bridge and as they're going across, they kind of slip, they lose control and the donkey falls off the bridge into the water and floats away and he's gone. And the moral of the story is, if you listen to everybody's advice, you'll end up losing your ass, right? And the, the idea is that you've got to be wise about who it is you're listening to. Not all advice is equal, right? It isn't. So don't treat it as such. And I think for all of us here today, my, my encouragement would be that to continue to glean wisdom. And today we looked at just a few principles, just a few ideas, that your reputation is very significant, that you need to live with the end in mind. The way you live your life at the end will be a statement to how well you lived it. And then are you the kind of person that's just trying to avoid dealing with what it is that life brings you? Or are you willing to lament well? Are you willing to walk through it? And as you take this journey of faith, are you the kind of person that's able to listen to advice and discern what it is that's wise and allow that which isn't to fade into the distance? May we be people this week of wisdom. Will you stand with me? Our benediction for this morning is this, new community. As you enter this new week, may you experience God's presence. May you feel the Holy Spirit over your thoughts and words. May you feel the Holy Spirit dwell over your feelings, emotion, and compassion for others. And may you feel the Holy Spirit in your hands and feet as you put wisdom into action. During this week, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with each of you. And we pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You are dismissed. Have a great week.